Adam Chernoff, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back on, my friend. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Betfair Australia. No matter where you are in the world, if you're looking to find your edge in sports betting or racing, you'll need to visit the Betfair Hub. From analysis to betting psychology, it has everything that you need. Simply visit betfair.com.au slash hub. Adam Chernoff, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. It's a pleasure to have you back on, my friend. Thanks for having me on, Jake. I think it's been a couple of years since we met up at ICE and had a chat, but I looked back through the Skype history and saw it was three and a half years since the first um, time I came on the show. So really good to talk to you again and, and get a chance to go through a lot of different things. Yeah, it's wild. I, I can't believe it's been three years of this, you know, weekly episodes with fellas like yourself coming on and then gals and guys talking about the betting industry. Who would have thought there was enough to talk about with a show like this running every week? You're probably, I would say, the most prominent voice now in the industry. I mean, we're seeing the tweets come out, and they're getting more reception than anything, but the episodes week after week have been terrific. So I think on behalf of the, the gambling world, I uh, can pass along a thank you for providing all the great content every single time. I do defer a lot of that, and I think rightly so to a lot of the guests, and I think it's something that um, you know I've always tried to have new guests on with new perspectives and different knowledge and expertise, and I think now it's it's a lot of fun to go back and chat with people like yourself and get other people on who I spoke, like literally three years ago we chatted. Obviously, we've, we've met in between and, and chatted about different things along the way, but tell me, the last three years for you, anything stand out uh, business-wise, professionally or personally that's changed or evolved over that time the last time we spoke i was just coming out of the bookmaking side of things and i was dealing with the fallout of a lottery product i had but between then and now i uh, actually got involved pretty heavily on the corporate side of things but not not so much for sports betting but for casino products i was working for a company out of vancouver uh, that was publicly traded here in Canada. And so I got thrown into that somewhat unexpectedly through an article that I wrote online. And it, it found the eyes of people along the way that were involved with the company. And just through um, sort of complete chance, ended up into the product management role over there and was doing some product consulting and leading some development for a product that they had. And that was uh, an avenue that I never really anticipated to go down. But in terms of my personal trajectory looking back over the last decade in the industry it's interesting to see how uh, I started probably in the most unregulated space possible and backed my way in over the course of 10 years into working uh, in the most regulated side of the business possible so it was interesting to learn that space and deal with everything that goes on there and then also be able to see how things are on the regulated side, especially over in the UK and Europe, but also learn a lot about what's going on in the United States as well. So it was uh, an interesting time, but I've been now removed from that for a year and I'm back to the betting side full time, which is uh, much more comfortable for me anyway. You do find yourself thrown into some interesting situations. And for those that haven't listened to the first time I spoke with Adam or if you just go on YouTube or Google uh, his name, you'll find some very interesting stories over the time of what he's done. But 
Does anything, I guess, jump out at you from that time when you were working on the lottery product and then doing some consulting on that front, whether it was, you know, the product itself, working in those types of companies, obviously, within gaming? I, I think there's a number of things, like just to give some context to it. So the company I was working for out of Vancouver, Canada, they produced electronic table games. So their main focus was uh, a poker table, which was fully electronic, no dealer, no cards, no chips, which surprisingly now with everything going on, actually is probably quite appealing to a lot of casinos. Um, but then beyond that, uh, I was given the chance to run with building my own slot terminal. So I built... Uh, from scratch from the ground up at least the prototype before I ended up leaving but a fully functional blackjack terminal but uh, through that uh, it was interesting to see first of all how slow the industry is from that sort of high level corporate side when you're dealing with some of the major slot manufacturers some of the largest gaming companies um, something like IGT comes to mind with their video game patents and really getting into the side of how patented all the games are, we got a request from one of our customers to build a video uh, video poker terminal because they wanted to upgrade some of their video poker offerings. And um, I had no idea at the time. I said, sure, and we ran with it. We put together the designs. But to go into how patented literally everything from how the pay table is listed at the top of the game to how the cards are dealt across the screen, uh, a lot of these things that are making companies millions and billions of dollars every single year are so locked up that to try be a new competitor in that space is so capital intensive and so difficult to come up with an idea that's not already taken. So it was really interesting to me to see that really the reason things are so slow moving is because so much of the stuff is locked up and just the barriers to entry are so really high. So it was interesting to see that side and, and just realize how difficult it was to break into that space. That's fascinating. I think growing up in Australia and hearing about aristocrat and just doing some basic reading on what they've done and how they've approached things obviously other igt you mentioned Novomatic, and these types of companies when you talk about building a slot terminal at least the prototype what goes into that because i've read about you know phds looking at behavior and, and things like that timing windows to make sure that people are engaged is it that type of stuff or is it way more complex or is it way more simple than that tell us about what goes into that type of thing so our, one of our biggest customers was the largest cruise ship operator in the world. And so they had the electronic table game offering on about 45 of their ships. So I was very close with the head of gaming. And in total, they were doing a couple billion dollars a year in revenue. And there was a trip to Miami where I was doing an installation and the company was looking at putting when you're, when you're on a cruise ship, the biggest issue is space. So they're always trying to look at ways to save space. So they can fit more machines in, get more play, get more turnover. And the company had this idea of basically it was a flat screen TV that was sunken into the wall or sunken into different pillars across different places on the ship. And so I was walking around ships with their head of gaming. And because the company I worked for was so heavily involved with the cruise line, uh, they basically used us in a way as sort of a bit of a research facility because they could come to us with these ideas, see what we could come back with very quickly. Whereas if they were to approach a vendor like Aristocrat or IGT, it, the time to get something back would not only cost them a lot more, uh, but it would be so slow. So we're walking around and basically the idea was 
what could we put in this form factor that would be appealing. And so that turned into looking not only at spots inside of casinos that would attract people, but they had these things on like the top deck outside of the pools. They had them outside of elevators. So it became you have all these lines of people trapped by elevators for 60, 120, 180 seconds. How can you maximize that quick play? You have people who are upstairs with their family on the pool deck having lunch. What can be an attractor to get people to come up to this screen and play? So it was not only um, like the attraction part to get people in front of the machine and playing that was a big deal, but then also how do you lock them in? And the three big factors when you're building any sort of gaming product, whether it's slots, table games, um, sports betting, anything is speed, continuity, and isolation. So you have to get the players playing as quickly as possible. The continuity between plays has to be as seamless as possible so there's no decisions. And then you have to get them mentally isolated to the game where they're not being pulled away. And if you look at any other successful gaming machine in any avenue of the industry, they do all three of those exceptionally well. So when it came to putting these things outside of the casino environment, that's where it really became challenging because all of a sudden you're dealing with a very different psychology of the people be from where they are versus when they're in a casino they're going to think very differently so that was a really challenging proposition to overcome and i, I think we came close but um ultimately it, it never necessarily panned out just the economics of the deal weren't there but i think the game offering that i was able to come up with was quite good have you did you sense a change in that industry at all given <clears throat> excuse me i think a lot of the uh younger demographics may not be that interested in static slot machine type play. And I know I've heard things about skill-based games, for example, and not necessarily taking off at all, but being uh, developed and, and potentially an option later in, uh, you know, the, the, I guess, evolution of iGaming especially. Is there any sense that things will shift from the typical Vegas-style slot machine covering up a lot of the floor, or is that still the go-to? And then maybe the, the 21 to 30-year-old age bracket may not play as much but they're not as worried about that i'm i'm not personally sold on the skill-based gaming yet i think that the game offerings from someone like a gamblet or other companies like that who have sort of gone out and they've tried the typical slot machine model where they franchise or brand a big name that's familiar to try get the initial attraction to the machine i think they've done that part semi well but the game offering uh, just isn't there yet. And a lot of the games are pretty time intensive. It takes a minute or two to get through a play. You need to have multiple people playing at the machine unless it's like a, a single, like endless runner type of game where you're working through an environment. But um, And the pay table is also very difficult to put to that. Uh, where I thought I found a really good mix, especially for this environment, and there was actually casinos interested, um, I was looking at licensing a title that was very similar to Candy Crush. It had the similar look, and we were able to initially license the title, and then we worked very hard with the game manufacturer to put a math model and a pay table behind the initial game itself because as much as you can take a game no matter what the title is there's still a lot of work that needs to be done from the math side 
And we were able to put together a very good math model behind the game that looked and played just like Candy Crush. So we had the ability for players to go through and match different tiles within the game. Um, and then there was a really attractive bonus where they got to work through different levels and unlock multipliers as they went through. So the game offering, I thought, from that attraction standpoint for that demographic, but then also something that when you have it in this environment, you have the families on top by the pools. It's something the kids recognize and not necessarily to get the kids playing, but to say, oh, look, what's that? And then it gets the parents' attention as well. So I thought that was a really good fit for that demographic. And I think we'll see more of these sort of bridge games build off of the success we're seeing from mobile games get into the casino more so than seeing old video game titles reborn into casino games to sort of fit this skill gaming model. I think there's a really good balance somewhere in between and it's just, it's not quite there yet, but someone's going to come out with that first big hit and then that's going to click and really drive a lot of traffic that way. What's the life cycle on getting a product ready and done? You said you were there for a year or so. Is that enough time or is it, does it really take between compliance and you know, the product roadmaps and the development and all the outsourcing bits and pieces that come with it? Because often people will say, well, they should do this and it should be ready in a week. I don't understand why it's so hard, which (laughs) generally is, is is a funny way to put it. But seemingly for those like myself and many others that aren't in the thick of it, we don't know how all that works. But is it something that takes? So if a machine is on the floor tomorrow, and obviously a bad timing in the world to, to say something like that, but when would the initial ideation started and the development and all that? Is that a, is that a long, long, long cycle? So I, I can give a pretty specific answer to that. So for the poker product that the company had when I arrived in November, uh, it was a couple of years back now, 2017. So I got there in November. I took over as the product manager role in January, and it was a team of 10 developers who had been with the product for about two years. Um, the the One of the hurdles was that there wasn't a lot of casino experience. So it was built from a tech and innovation standpoint more than it was to be something that could go on a gaming floor. So I had the first meeting with the CEO of the company and the GLI, which is the regulatory body for electronic gaming machines in North America and the world. We had the first meetings in January. And the first thing was we had to get it classified as what type of machine it was. And then from that, we had to make it fit into the regulatory guidelines that the company had in order to get it approved to the point where a casino could consider putting it on the floor. And that took 10 developers working five days a week. Uh, We finished it the middle of July. And that was basically 100% effort from 10 guys. It took the better part of six months to walk things back, not only from a tech side, but also from a hardware side too, to the point where we had to get the test engineers into the lab. It took them about eight weeks in total to go through and test all the math, test the technology. They would go as far as putting water onto the machine and then essentially taking a cattle prod and zapping it to see if it could survive that. And all that happened in the warehouse. It was quite something to see. Uh, But that whole process, not only was there a huge capital requirement, but it took um, close to seven and a half months for that one. Um, and, And part of that was because the initial build of the machine was not done with the regulatory um, part in mind. So there was some backtracking there as well. But um, the effort that went in was monumental. Now, with the terminal, 
it was a lot quicker to get there because there was expertise on board that knew how to go through it, first of all. Uh, but second, it's much easier to build something like that where there's sort of a mold already made. So from the terminal side, it was taking uh, four to five months. But the capital, again, to get that approved and, and to get everything to spec was it, it's just a lot of capital and a lot of effort to get it through. Yeah, it's a, a pretty good illustration of what it takes and. Obviously, the compliance part you mentioned with gaming laboratories doing what they need to do and I guess building two compliance specs in advance obviously would have been helpful, but we'll talk about the sports betting technology in a minute. Just one other question. Did you enjoy the corporate side of things and you know, obviously the business development and the management meetings and, and that type of thing? I like the idea of it. It was fun <laughs> to be, I guess, playing it on, on the biggest level. I mean, it was fun to go to ice and be among all the big names in the industry. And it was like the first time that I felt like I was doing something right that could be understood by others and family and friends and appreciated for what I was doing. But like looking back at the time, and a lot of people would think differently, but I, I was earning a good salary. I was working downtown in Vancouver on Granville Street, one of the biggest offices. I had a view of the whole downtown from the office, and I worked from 9 till 4.30. Uh, it was the worst 18 months of my life, and it, I became miserable having to go to the office. It was, it was just so foreign to me to have that paycheck every two weeks and to go home at 5 o'clock and be like, okay, I'm done and not have to think about anything, not have to do anything. Uh, it was it was an enormous struggle. And I, uh, looking back, and I still remain friends with the CEO of the company and then the senior manager who's now with Amazon. But I chat back with them, and, and they were surprised that I made it as long as I did because it's kind of a joke now. But um, it was just, it was such a struggle for me to work in that office environment and not be able to sort of push things forward at the speed I wanted to. So I'm, I'm glad I'm back uh, on the betting side for sure. Do you have any thoughts on the uh, sportsbook side of technology? I know you spent some time with it uh, and throughout the years we, we went through on the, the first episode together. I know you're in Columbia and a few other places doing a lot of different things and I'm sure you've tested and, and built and been a part of a lot of different sportsbook technology, but just generally first, how have you felt things sit on that side of things? Obviously, talking about the last decade or so, is it something that is as good as technology in every other industry? Is it something that is really difficult to describe and, and then also obviously build and it takes a lot of time and effort? It's a good question. And I think the reason I sort of lack a clear answer is because unlike slots which really opened my eyes like looking back through how the machine evol like the evolution of slot machines between the 60s 70s 80s into now where we are like there was always a new piece of technology that was integrated that drastically changed the game and as i've done some consulting work over the last year for different sports books the main part of the issue is that the process of placing a sports bet has been the same since the start of time like someone will walk up to someone behind the counter and they'll place a bet that interaction between customer and bookmaker it's never changed 
in terms of what deal is being done. It's just the medium that betters use has changed. So it used to be and still is in many places, someone walking up to a counter, looking at a price and placing a bet. Then it moved to going to a computer, looking up a price and placing a bet. And now it's mobile, going to your phone, looking up a price and placing a bet. So it's I, I want to say that the thing that I don't like about the sports betting industry is nobody's done anything innovative, but it's very difficult to come up with something that's innovative when everybody's used to this process that's occurred for as long as anyone has been betting on sports. So it's really hard to change that where in other sort of verticals of gambling, there's something that you can add in that drastically changes how things are done. So my one answer is I'm sort of disappointed, but at the same time, it's not necessarily valid because sports is is so difficult to do that. But I do think the one thing that I'm waiting to see happen sort of at a wider scale, and we're seeing little bits and pieces of it in the North American market, whether it be from casinos in Nevada, a few of them are doing it in some spots in New Jersey are doing it as well, but offer something based on what or I guess a good way to put it is I'm waiting for an operator to really listen to the customer and offer a product that fills a void for what customers are looking for. And like I can quote what the guys in Circa in Nevada are doing where they're really listening to the customers. They're offering transparency and how they're offering their prices and their limits and things like that. They're doing a fantastic job. There, there needs to be more of that. And I'm not sure why it's not happening because I think it's an enormous opportunity as betting becomes more and more social and everyone's more and more connected. So I think in terms of what I'd like to see happen from sports betting on the tech side, it's just more of that. And I think it's really simple, uh, but it's just not happening at a wide enough scale yet to where we can really see innovative things come from that. If you were my consultant and I owned a sports betting business and I wanted to launch in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, uh, do retail in Mississippi, uh, online and retail in Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, uh, and I want to be ready to go in Colorado and Tennessee. How long should that typically take? Because we're seeing businesses that have to do that now and have gone through that cycle in the last 18, 24 months. And obviously they're not necessarily all in all of those states, but I think that would be ideally part of their strategy. Do you have a sense from your experience and just seeing this market unfurl what in terms of the product and technology side, how possible is that if you were if you were told that you had to launch in in seven, eight, nine, ten states in ten, twelve, fourteen months, is that just an insurmountable task? And that's why there are some of these issues that we are seeing that are obviously impacting the the betters. I I don't have the best answer from the economic side, but I know that each state has drastically different taxes and regulations in terms of how the finances are handled. So that's obviously a huge hurdle to overcome. But from a tech side, um, building a product that fits those three different verticals, because again, you can't just build the best mobile sports book and offer it in all the states. You can't just build the best brick and mortar sports book and, and offer it everywhere and find success. So I think that causes uh, a lot of issue. And we see a lot of people do it really well from one or the other. Um, but I think that the timeline you'd be looking at to build one of each uh, is going to be longer unless you're going out and sort of white labeling or sourcing another piece of software. But it's with all the different challenges that each individual state presents by itself, uh, I think it's a really difficult sort of challenge to overcome and um, not one that I've sort of been requested by any companies to do yet. Most of the stuff I've done is in the international market recently, but um, I think that that time is going to come and it's going to be 
uh, a very interesting challenge to try to overcome for sure. So you mentioned Circle before. Obviously, they're they're existing Nevada business, and and I think they're looking to go into Colorado uh, as soon as next month. Uh, what have you, I guess, observed from Circa, uh, either up close and personal in Nevada or, or from afar that you like? And and you mentioned before they might be listening to their customers and reacting to that. They obviously seem like the the limits are higher than typical uh, when it comes to some other offerings. So just tell me about what your experience or thoughts are on Circa. So and this kind of ties back to sort of my back and forth with GLI and their offices in Vancouver. A lot of the sports betting stuff came from Salim and Robert out of the Vancouver office, uh, who are great guys, and I've gone back and forth with them a number of times. But they sent out the initial sports betting standard right after the reveal of PASPA a couple of years ago, which is what was at the time GLI 33. And they sent out um, review copies to people who they were involved with in the industry and they said read it and send back your thoughts and, and tell me what you think and I was one of the people that received it and did the review copy and the one thing that stood out to me on how they were approaching sports betting from a regulatory side was there was different regulations for different types of betting so there was different regulations for betting over the counter there was different regulations for betting at a kiosk and there was different regulations for betting mobile and all of them were quite drastically different and i thought that it would be more beneficial if again because the process is so similar if you could make it as similar as possible between the three and some of the things that i proposed for just transparency to the players was that every sports book would have to publish their margins along with every market that they offered. And the reason I think that that's important, especially in the U.S., is because mathematically when you're looking at U.S. odds, it's so difficult for a player to go up and convert the American odds to an implied probability, figure out the margin, and work back from that. And as we're seeing some states now, like minus 130 is becoming the minimum to offer, uh, bettors don't necessarily know what they're walking into and what they're betting. So I thought that that was going to be a big thing to do, and that's something that Circa has done really well. So now in all their social publications, they're publishing all of their work along with the hold that they have priced into these markets, especially with the futures markets, which they're offering, uh, which I think is really fair and really beneficial for the better to know. And from the bookmaking side of it, it's a great thing to do because, again, anytime you can establish some level of trust with the customer, it's a big bonus. So they do that exceptionally well. I think the limits that they're taking are extremely fair and it allows them they're more in sort of the price discovery rather than the retail model from that perspective they're able to do things like this and get very creative with what they offer we're seeing them now get into some of these small mini golf tours uh, on these weeks where there's nothing else to bet because they've sort of established that process of price discovery internally it allows them to be much more creative with the markets that they're offering. And it's great to see that they're stepping up and they're taking reasonable limits from that. And when I'm listening to some of the guys that work over there, specifically Matt just did an interview, he says he doesn't want to put up things that they're taking 50, 100 bucks on just to sort of pass the time. If they want to do it, they're doing the research, they're coming up with numbers that they're confident in, and they're taking reasonable limits. So doing that, I think puts them in a very good spot where they can get very creative with what they offer. And again, you have to have the right people for it that have the right skill set. So it's not something that every bookmaker can do. But as they move into these different states, 
I think they're in a very advantageous position because they can set the markets they want to cater to the community that they're offering those wagers to. So I really like what they're doing from those three verticals. And they're really sort of the first book that satisfied some of those regulations that I proposed in that review copy uh, when sort of the initial guidelines were coming up. Interesting. Are there a laundry list of those items that you think would help the the average better? Because I think it's admirable and very useful, certainly for a, a large percentage of those who, who bet relatively often. I'm, I don't know that it'll help the once a year guy who walks into a sports book or downloads the app when he or she is in Nevada or hopefully Colorado soon and bets on Circa to see, well, this uh, Super Bowl market is 138% or uh, whatever it might be, or this other futures market is 160% if it's golf, for example. Uh, are there many other things that they can and should be thinking about? And do you think that it will have a, a big enough impact to make it worthwhile? I, th- I think that it has to happen eventually because, I, I mean, there's no reason that something that's priced like that shouldn't be displayed to people. And the fact that it's a conversation that doesn't exist for the most part in 99% of betting conversations um, is is really, really bizarre because if you think about any table game, there's the average person will know what the whole percentage is on a roulette or they'll know what they're getting into from a betting perspective. And as betting opens up to a lot of eyes for a a first time, especially with younger generation coming up year after year. Now there's a very big and new audience. I think that it's really important to have that. Um, In terms of the list, I mean, off the top of my head now, I would, I would have to think of a few different ones, but I think just from the transparency side, I think margin should be always displayed. I think limits should be displayed. And I think that books should go as much as they can to cross the line of being more transparent than than the opposite, which is what we're seeing, I think, from a lot of different retail shops in terms of how props are offered. Um, for example, you can't just offer a yes on a prop and price it up or a no on a prop to an unrealistic price and not have a market that's fair in any way to the customer uh, by not offering both sides of that. So that was a a regulation that existed in Nevada, but we're seeing in New Jersey and elsewhere bookmakers able to get through with that, especially on the mobile side, uh, where they're just putting unrealistic prices up that have gigantic holds, but because both sides of the market are not offered, um, then that becomes just a really big sort of violation of trust overall. So I think that there's bits and pieces from Nevada that could be taken elsewhere, but anything that enhances the transparency would go a very long way on the product side. Yeah, no, I, I do think you're right. That's the direction we should be heading. And maybe I'm a little bit too much in a bubble where um, what I'm looking at may not be what the average person is always looking at and being in New Jersey Compared to other states, certainly more spoilt here and just thinking about Pennsylvania and the, the tax rate barriers and what flow down effect that's having. I'm sure you probably saw Montana, I think it was, who put out pretty ridiculous, uh, pretty ridiculous lines out there. And there's some other states where they have other challenges that just cause some issues. So not to mention um, all the different issues with integrating all the different suppliers and technology and, and vendors that are required to get the odds up and and it's not necessarily a simple, easy task um, when factoring all that in, or at least it's not proving to be. So you're right. I think the transparency helps. I think I see on certainly on the finance side, you'll see uh, ads in different places that'll say, you know, by the way, at the bottom, you know, 70% or 80% of people don't make money actively trading or, or 71% of people that do this will have a bad outcome and things like that, which is kind of refreshing and nice to see when you come from the sports betting side because that certainly doesn't exist but i think um 
maybe a different way to frame it for those that are brand new at it. You know, if you said for every dollar you, you gamble, on average, you're going to lose this many cents because oftentimes it'll be 10, 12, 17, 21 cents out of your dollar that's gone. So I think that that transparency aspect will certainly help the industry as it grows and as you know, new markets come online. 100%. And I was hoping Montana would give me something because I'm about two hours north of the border where I'm living <laughs> now. And so I was, I was desperately waiting for that to happen and was going to sort of include it in as my first stop in the the tv series on youtube that i'm starting to do but once i saw that it was i think they opened minus 135 aside if i remember correctly so that was uh pretty disappointing but just in general pretty gross to see really and i think montana's the state where you're better off owning a a tavern or a bar there and you can get a clip of the ticket on the license product (laughs) there and i think the license is some ridiculous amount under a couple hundred bucks so Maybe that's the path if you uh, if you want to sit in your car all day, every day, driving a couple of hours. But we'll leave that for another time. Let's jump onto the betting side and talk about that. I think uh, it's a unique time, certainly for sports. I spoke to a uh, an old horse racing friend, and he was talking about the equine influenza, which I think was about 10, 15 years ago now, where certainly in Australia they had a, a forced break, and everyone took a collective breath with what they were doing in the industry. But... I don't know about on the sports side. There seems like forever to a day there's been something available. Is this the first time you remember not being able to to be active in the marketplace? It's been a month, I believe. Today or tomorrow was – I've this year got really heavily back into golf. And so I was loaded up for the Players' Championship. And I remember watching the press conference with the commissioner, Jay Monahan on – round one it was like right at lunchtime when coverage came on and like he was adamant that the tournament was going to continue and everyone was going to play and they're working with the state of florida and so i was looking at it like this is great i mean i'm not too concerned that basketball is going away it's unfortunate for everyone that bets the league and stuff but i was convinced that golf was still going to go forward and it's going to be fine and then it seemed like in the course of four to five hours after that press conference it went from everything's fine we're going to push forward and go ahead to okay we're shut down indefinitely and maybe we'll get the masters but probably not and so i remember that night that thursday night when i was pulled up the don best screen and it was blank and like i've never i've never seen that and the weirdest part for me was waking up the next morning and i remember i was always wake up go to the desk look at the odds see what's going on for the day and I stopped short at the desk and I was like, there's nothing, there's nothing to look at. And it was like a mix of like anxiety because I didn't know what to necessarily think about or like, okay, what am I going to do today? Like I had, it went from something that just, you're always thinking about every single day, anytime that there's a downtime to nothing within the matter of like eight hours. And so really caught me off guard and I it took me a couple days to sort of get my head straight and be like okay what can what can I do to sort of pass the time here but um it's it's unlike anything other where there's been times where I've taken a break or I've stepped away where after a football season um what have you but never a time where even when you want to go bet uh that you're not finding anything aside from NFL draft props coming up in a few weeks to really bet anything meaningful into. Have you spent more than a few minutes on something like the Outlaw Tour or even some of these other ridiculous leagues just to see if it's even worth considering or not? I I was able to find a place that was taking 250 on matchups. And so 
the problem with like the outlaw tour is now that it's the only one running you're getting guys coming back like you have alex shaka who used to play um a high level as well but you're getting like corn Ferry and mckenzie tour guys from the past who were trying to do bigger and better things but they're in arizona they have nothing else going on so they're like i'm gonna play in a tournament where the entry fee is $700 uh, and try to win a couple thousand dollars myself just to sort of stay in shape. So you have, like, if there's a field of 50 guys, you have 40 where you can really get actually somewhat decent data on in terms of strokes gained or sort of past performance. But then you have these guys that are squeezed in at the top of the market who have maybe played one event on tour and but they're so significantly better than the rest of the guys on the developmental tour that they're my they're plus 200 to win the tournament um so we're seeing it's it's kind of hard to handicap from that perspective but um certainly in something like this what i find interesting is from the bookmaker side they probably don't know much more than any betters because there's so limited data that you can potentially or at least i think find a couple of opportunities but i mean it's nothing that's going to pay the bills or or keep you keep you moving in terms of trying to generate a income from something but it keeps you a little bit sane i guess to follow it on the leaderboards in terms of just getting some action into the accounts what about the NFL draft? It, it seems like an obvious yes, just given it's not that far away. So if you are betting now, your bankroll's not tied up too long and it's something to keep the sanity in check. But also there may not be limits that high necessarily. And I might be wrong. I'll, I'll throw that over to you in a sec. But is it something that is a no-brainer for those that are betting uh, often and even professionally are going to be focusing on pretty heavily over the coming days and weeks? Yeah, it was a no-brainer for me. I think... If you're going to be getting into things right now and you don't have anything bet, you're probably better off waiting a week or so because what's different about this draft is obviously there's no other sports going on, but there's been sort of the timing of when it went down. You had a lot of these sports books um, with people firing money into their account, getting ready for March Madness and the conference tournaments. And so when everything sort of switched off, a lot of these books were doing whatever they can to put up something that betters could bet so that fun that money could stay in their accounts for that much longer and it became a case for a lot of these books just sort of trying to preserve the balances of their customers as much as possible and so we saw these markets populated to the extent that we would in a normal year um in, at the end of March at the latest, when usually that wouldn't start to happen until right now in the middle of April. So a lot of these prices were put up much earlier than they normally would be, and they were bet into place a lot quicker than they normally would be because there was more eyes on them. There was more people focused on them. Um, but we're getting to the point now where I think a lot of different places have offered too much. And what I'm starting to notice is there'll be sort of major – overlying markets like for example offensive players drafted versus defensive players drafted in the first round and we'll see something like that move up from minus 110 to currently minus 300 and that will have ripple effects throughout the rest of the market but it won't happen immediately because it's very difficult for bookmakers to say we're taking a lot of money here and this is telling us one thing now, of the 500 different propositions we've offered, 
how many of those directly correlate and tie into this major price. And so there was a lot of lag in where the prices were moving or where they didn't move. And that presented a lot of opportunity. That's now died down to an extent. But what we're going to see is this big influx of media, because now that we're sort of past all of these reruns of the Masters week and such, there's going to be sort of now a reasonable two-week lead-up to the draft where, just like any other year, it's a competition to get clicks and generate views by saying outrageous things. But now the problem is that no media reporter or team personnel member can travel to see players on their pro day or evaluate them. So it's now the media playing off of different rumors and all of these internal scouts playing off of videos that are sent out in a mass email by players to different teams who are interested. So we're going to see probably more overreaction and more false speculation on different players and rumors than we ever have in years past. And that's going to create, I think, the same effect within the market. So we've already seen a bit with Tua Tagovailoa, who's the second QB prospect in the draft. There's been rumors going back and forth, but his draft position being so high shifts everything else behind him. And so we saw his price go crazy, but nothing else behind them moved. And so we're going to see a lot of that in the next uh, two weeks leading up to the draft. And I think if you haven't gotten involved, it's a no brainer to sit and wait for that, things like that to happen and then pick your spots sort of off the main markets that haven't moved yet. And you're going to find a lot of value that way. Do you suggest people that may not yet looked at those markets go back and try and find opening prices and odds movements and, ju and just digest what has happened so far? Or do you think they should ignore that completely if they can and just go off what the current market is? I, I think you have to set some sort of reference point for some of these. And it's tricky because a lot of the – well, none of the odds comparison websites really – do any sort of jo good job comparing props um, because it's really up to the sportsbook what they offer. But the way to sort of do that is to go back through Google and just search for sportsbook name, draft props, opening prices, 2020. And you really, you have to sort of uh, work to find it. But pretty well every major sportsbook that most people listening will be playing at release some sort of press article to begin with. And you can sort of piece them together to get like initial opening prices and compare it to what you have now. But it would it's really amazing how some like what moved first, specifically the interest in offensive players, what moved second, the lack of interest in quarterbacks, and then see how everything shifted behind that over the last three weeks a lot of things have really moved into place um and so as long as you kind of have an idea of where some of those major props started then you'll know when they move back and where sort of you don't get caught thinking that it's a big move back when really it's something that's already moved a ton and is just sort of adjusting back a little bit in the other direction so it's it takes some work but um i think a lot of people have a lot of time, so you can kind of grind it out through Google and find those articles to get those prices. How efficient do you think these individual markets are? And the reason I ask is I, I spoke to Marco from Pinnacle recently, and he was talking about the Soccer World Cup where the markets themselves may not necessarily be that efficient just because these players haven't played in these groups together against these teams before. And they do it every four years, and it's a mix from different tournaments, uh, sorry, different players from different leagues and different countries and so on who all come together for the World Cup. But he has the highest limits and he has to because that's just what needs to be done. I get the sense there might be something not necessarily the same, but it's similar in the sense that 
there may be higher limits in some of these markets because it's the only thing available available and the sports books may be getting more comfortable towards draft night as to where things might have settled. Do you think that's the case where we might have a mismatch between what the limits are and, and actually how efficient the markets are? I, I think 100% that they're going to be higher because there's nothing else going on. And it's really getting like we're in the middle of april and the draft is at the end of april this is really the dead downtime for a lot of these sports books so like again it's all about getting something to first of all keep the money in the accounts but second of all try to generate as much as you can so i think the risk tolerance on some of these for a lot of bookmakers is going to be much higher than usual in terms of efficiency i've heard sort of two different thought processes to this one and i'm not entirely sure where i fall but the first one is that these are going to be the most efficient draft markets because they've been open for longer, they've been uh, at higher limits for longer, and there's been more eyes looking at them than ever before because there's no basketball, NBA, NHL, anything else to take focus off of these for people who are betting to it. So I can see where that makes sense. But then the other side to that argument, like we just sort of talked about, is a lot of the sources of information that bookmakers or bettors rely on are going to be a lot less confident in what they know because of the travel restrictions, because of team facilities being shut down. So I think that there's, I think that there's going to be a lot of variance in the information that people are getting compared to years past, which could be very interesting as well. So I think I'm somewhere in the middle where um, I would say that some of them are going to be a lot more efficient than they would in years past, but there's still going to be a lot more opportunity elsewhere down the line just because there's so many bets being offered and there's so much uncertainty going into the draft. It's going to be awesome. I cannot wait. <laughs> it's all virtually televised. I believe they've got the help of EA Sports, so they're going to customize the players walking across where they were supposed to be in the Bellagio. It's going to be uh, a pretty big scene, to say the least. Yeah, no, it's all good. So I wanted to ask about, have you had the luxury of, of looking ahead and thinking ahead when potentially, and I know Mark Cuban talked about it, I think it was as early as today or yesterday, about he thinks NBA is going to come back at some point with no fans. Uh, obviously, MLB, there's been some strange setups being proposed there with, I think, Arizona and Florida was mentioned and having games there between east coast teams and different timing and things like that but do you have a sense of what the actual betting markets are going to look like when we when we come back do you think there'll be a a surge and a rush from the bookmakers to put things out the betters to come flocking back and it'll be business as usual or do you think there'll be a feeling out period potentially where people aren't quite sure what's going on how it's going to look there's going to be some weird stuff going on and it might be a a bit more tentative rather than a, a flocking back to those markets I don't think that there's going to be a hesitation from people wanting to gamble or not wanting to gamble. Um, I, I think as we've seen in years past, like the obvious sort of argument to that is the financial situation that a lot of people may unfortunately find themselves in. But in years past when um, sort of national global finance has been in the tank, it, it hasn't necessarily slowed down sports betting whatsoever. The only thing that's really slowed down sports betting is just not being able to offer any sports because they're not being played. So I think that the interest is still going to be there. In terms of how bookmakers are going to handle it, it, it probably depends on the timing and sort of the structure that we see. If the MLB happens to carry out what they proposed, which would be quite something, then uh, like, there's obviously going to be quite a big readjustment to how teams are priced and offered and and you're going to get some matchups that are quite unusual to how it is um in terms of nfl 
there's debate between whether or not it's going to start on time. I get the feeling that it won't. And then there's also the debate to whether or not it starts with or without fans. I think that's probably going to lead to a bit of a false correction. Home field advantage in the NFL is decreasing as it is across the league. Uh, and it has nothing to do with how loud the fans are at the games. But I think people are really going to buy into that. And that's probably just going to correct home field to what it actually is. So there's going to be a different mindset from betters for sure. But in terms of how bookmakers are going to price games, I don't think it's going to be too big of a challenge if the leagues return in a state that we know it as with or without fans. I think the only thing that could really sort of change anything is if something like the MLB carries out where we're getting matchups that we're just not used to seeing on a day-in and day-out basis. Yeah, I think on the betting side, especially for the the professional bettors out there, there seems like there are a million different narratives and potential threads to follow in terms of what to expect and then how to act. Because I was talking to a, a friend of mine, professional better who... He bets NFL and he was basically saying, look, I don't know if uh, having no OTAs, having a, a strange draft potentially, depending on how that plays out, uh, no preseason games, maybe they'll change the amount of uh, people on the roster, certainly on game day. Uh, obviously, the coaches, if they're new coaches, it's going to have an impact. New quarterbacks or, or quarterbacks that have changed teams may not get as much time with their uh, teammates. There's a million different things to think about and not to mention all the historical data that's in the models, that's in the database, you might be able to throw that all out the window if everything is very different to what it's typically been. Or it might be we're all overreacting and really once we get to week three of the NFL, it's going to be you know, 93% chance of it being basically the same or very similar to what every other week three of every other season has been like. So it seems like you can do your head in with just thinking about all the possibilities as well as um, you know, actually what plays out. Yeah, we're, it's really going to be a wait and see, but I just hope that we get football in some form come September because right. right now it's uh, – I, I I think that we're going to – shortly after the draft, OTAs in the offseason, the rookies reporting, I, there's no way that that's going to go through. So I've sort of prepared for that to be canceled. They're going to need at least at a minimum seven weeks for training camp and some resemblance of preseason or walkthroughs or something. So, I mean, it's not a matter of does this clear up by September. It's really does this clear up by July to the point where they can open facilities. So uh, I just have my fingers crossed. And then it's it's interesting to hear. That's a good point about, like, players switching teams and new trades and things like that. But it's really going to be a wait and see. So very recently in West Virginia, they opened up betting on the presidential election and then politics, essentially, and... It lasted about 30 minutes, depending on who you ask, and they shut it down pretty quickly. Do you have any experience over the years with uh, with politics betting, what the size of those markets might look like, or even just projecting here in the US if we get to a point where it is possible, it's being regulated, and the licensed offerings here can do that? What Tell us what you think you know that might look like if that was ever to happen. I, I'm not American, so I can't comment on how passionate I would be in terms of the election, but I would have to think that it would be absolutely enormous on like an individual basis, not only from just the interest and in like sort of the confidence betting on that, but also um, from the bookmaking side, attracting new customers that might not bet on football or any major sports. Like you might get like the people's mothers or what have you, like a completely different demographic going into the sports book to bet it. So I think that it would be huge. And I don't know how relevant sort of the comparison point is, but 
my sort of main experience from it was watching the Betfair exchange back when uh, Trump was running against Hillary. I think at some stage everyone had a sportsbook app open, seeing how crazy the prices were on that night in November a few years ago. But from just the Betfair side of it um, on the exchange, that was by far and away their biggest market ever offered. They did it was about 240 million. U.S. and a large percentage of that was on that final day and specifically in the final hours when things were going crazy back and forth. So if that provides any sort of relevant data point to having it offered within the country in the middle of everything heating up, like I think that it would be absolutely enormous in comparison. Uh, I don't know what went into why it was taken down. It sounds like there was some legal issues with it. I wasn't too familiar with how that sort of ultimately played out. But I think that offering it can only be a good thing for anyone offering it. And then the customers in that area too. So hopefully it's something that can be offered sooner rather than later. Should we let the incumbent US president bet on himself if he would like to? Do you think that's a good idea? <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> if you're betting on yourself, I, I mean, why not? I know Floyd Mayweather has tried to do that a fair bit over the years. So why not let the Donald try? And if he can and it's allowed, he, we should at least be able to see how much he bet on himself. I don't see why not. <laughs> so one final topic for you. In terms of a, a bit of a break from all of this, and you know, obviously there's some very minor things going on, but how do professional gamblers you network with and talk to or even yourself use this time to your advantage given it's very, very unlikely ever again maybe that we'll all get... Uh, you know, an extended period of time inside our homes, inside our offices, and, and maybe that comes with ancillary challenges like kids running around and, and all sorts of homeschooling things and whatnot. But what's some of the things that you've heard that are, you know, useful in this period of time? I think a lot of people are just disconnecting in general and taking some time off um, that I know a handful of guys that are, like, they're dealing with, especially guys with kids and families, that like, gets completely turned their life upside down. So it's probably a welcome disconnect. I, I pretended to do that for like a week and then I just, uh, I couldn't take it not doing something. Um, I don't have the commitments that a lot of other people do. They're going through the situation. So certainly, empathetic for that but for me and then uh, a select others that i deal with it's really a time to either like I, right now personally i'm as i'm sort of mid-july in a normal year prepped for the upcoming nfl season so that's been a bonus but for me personally uh tech has always been my weakness um so i've been i went through a two and a half week course um for learning our studio and trying to get a better grasp on just not necessarily the the nuts and bolts of doing a lot of things myself, but getting an idea for how I can, like what I can potentially look for, what I can potentially do um, with the help of someone else and what I can potentially create. Because I certainly don't see the big picture for a lot of just the NFL data specifically that's available through um, R right now. So it was a bit of an eye opener. I don't think I necessarily got any better. I can work through a basic tutorial to do a couple things, but I challenged myself that way. Um, but just now I'm working through, uh, there's a consultant that works for a number of uh, big corporate sports books over in the UK. And he actually offers an up-to-date odds compiling course. So I'm challenging myself there a little bit too, going back and just improving tech. He, he does most of his stuff through Excel, but building out different types of simulations and, and building out different sorts of in-play models too. So I'm doing that in my spare time just to, 
again, it's not, I don't see myself, I, I know my weaknesses, that's certainly one of them. Um, I don't think it's something that I'll ever be proficient at, but in order to ever use that to my advantage through the help of someone else, I sort of want to get uh, a mental grasp of what I can do with those and how I can be creative and how I can potentially help myself and what I do from betting. So that's what I've been doing. Um, it's been fun. It's certainly been very different. And it certainly gave me a lot of sort of regret for when I was working with developers who were writing hundreds and hundreds of lines of code for the slots or the table games that I was helping produce. And I would get mad when there was a bug uh, when I'm trying to just load a basic data set in R and I have the wrong letter capitalized and it crashes the whole thing. <laughs> uh, it gave me a lot of regret for how I acted and treated some of the people I've worked with along the way. So I guess it's a learning experience from that side too. And just finally, the simple handicap. Tell us why you do 10, 20-minute chunks of, of great information for all the NFL fans out there. Well, I, I was thinking back when I did the show with you a couple of years ago. That's when it first started. I think at the end of the show I said that that was something I was going to do. Yeah. It, it started, I was doing it on Amazon Alexa because I was big into, they were just coming out and all these smart devices and speakers and I was like, that's going to be the big thing. That's where I'm going to get all the people. And those have a time limit of uh, you can do like seven minutes as a maximum for the briefing on those. So that's where it started that year. And I think in total, I got about 150 listeners through all the devices combined worldwide. And so uh, it turned out to be somewhat of a waste <laughs> of time. 2018, I just put it on the podcast. But um, it, it's I want to just sort of take advantage of the time that people have in the morning. Uh, whether it's on the commute, whether it's something you're waking up at in the beginning of the day. I, it's something that it's really just me expressing my thoughts. I like doing radio. I like doing video. And so I just sort of relay what I think about the prices where I think they're going to move every single morning. And just not so much from a football analysis side, but just from a market and betting um, pricing movement side of things. That's where I focus on. That's what I do well. So we've been sharing it in the last two years it's done exceptionally well in the podcast form. So it's been fun and it's helped me sort of clear my head every single morning too during the season. Yeah, it really has. It's it's a fun lesson. It's good for, uh, I think from my perspective, just my usual week, it's nice to uh, to win the water cooler battle, uh, talking NFL and, and <laughs> betting with, uh, with listening to what you put out there and certainly a few others, but it's great to have a, a small chunk of time that I can put aside and then like i said sit at the bar and be well informed about a lot of things so keep doing it it's a lot of fun and and this was great fun i you know round two obviously three years later but i enjoyed it immensely it was as good as the first and i'm sure there'll be round three and four not too far down the track hopefully and whenever this clears up uh when i'm through with the series and out in the new jersey area i'll be sure to give you a call and can either come through a sports book or we'll sit down for a meal somewhere and, and put it on the video That'd be amazing. Thank you very much for your time, Adam. Thanks, Jake.